Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I am Rohati, coming at you from Treaty 7 lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. In this episode, part two of a two-part series with Tony Snow. Tony comes from a line of chiefs, the original treaty signers on Treaty 7, so I'm lucky to have him on this podcast. You can check out part one. That's going to help give you context. Season one also included an interview with Tony, so check that out as well. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the work of the Ecumenical Council that happened on Treaty 7 land over in Morley. It's important because there are lasting pieces about that council. And not only that, we're going to get a glimpse of Indigenous spirituality here. And that's particularly important in the context of the Christian faith because most of us have been formed in a white European gaze through a lens of those types of theologians, which isn't a bad thing necessarily, but it's certainly exclusive. What does it mean to reimagine the Christian faith by processing it through a different set of lenses of how we can see and understand the world. Tony gives us a sense of where we're at in our world right now in the present day, the kind of work of reconciliation and what can happen and the hope and the dream to come. He speaks about his emerging Indigenous church plant in the urban core here in Calgary. And we talk a little bit about decolonizing the Christian faith, which is a preview of the next couple of episodes. So, listen to part one, and enjoy this one. Is there an autobiography on, on Henry Bird? There is. It's called Sacred Feathers. Sacred Feathers. Yeah. I mean, if he was a white dude, yeah. I mean, there would be championing him, and, and yeah. he'd probably be a saint. Yeah. You made a comment about uh, the work that you're doing now is work that your dad could not do. Mm-hmm. Um, given the cultural climate then... Uh, Certainly things have changed uh, since then, 40 years since that initial work yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, what makes you think that it could happen today? I think there's a uh, greater awareness and understanding. There's a push towards uh, reconciliation and that type of talk that was never heard back in the 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it just coming out of um, the 70s protest movements and different things that were going on. Um, that act of rebellion, um, so a lot of it was was couched and, and, and silenced within the community and around about in our neighboring communities. Uh, so we didn't hear a lot about uh, some of those good acts that were being done, and there's not a lot of people willing to listen. Whereas now, I think. Um, Groups, especially from this baby boomer generation, I don't know if it's either regret or something that's going on with their sort of psyche around that, but Mm. there is a uh, real uh, attempt, I think, to try to understand, if only to understand. Uh, I think that that next level of understanding comes in with a more millennial and and, um, different population that actually does the work, that Mm. actually would be carrying forward some of those ideas and willing to engage and learn. Um, whereas a lot of the older generation, I think, are kind of set in, in what they're doing and have not had a, a great deal of uh, 
change um, enacted by that group. I think they're trying. I think there's uh, a real honest effort by some. And there's still a lot of uh, holdovers from racism and colonialism and and, uh, feelings of fear and anxiety around um, giving too many rights away to Indigenous people kind of thing, that um, they're wary of, of... where it goes and what their responsibility, what the um, what it will look like ultimately at the end of the day with either paycheck or something that's going on, how much are we really asking for? So that, to me, is sort of the uh, barrier on that one hand. But on the other side, for the younger generation, for people who really have grown up without the context of this um, colonial approach really being top of mind, people who have grown up in uh, multi-ethnic and and diverse schools and in diverse classrooms have a much different interpretation than the older generation that grew up in very segregated conditions. So the the obvious pushback to that is when you have a bunch of, we'll just, you know, carry on the term millennials who are figuring out not merely how to be woke, but you're yeah, going to yeah. do something about that. Yeah. The power holders, particularly the power holders in the institution, yeah. are still the same. Yeah. Or the baby boomers. Or perhaps they're not, but it strikes me as, as the power holders have not shifted. And so how, within institutional boundaries, how would you enact that change? Like, I, I like the, the hopeful yeah. narrative. I think you're right. There's absolutely culture shifts, no doubt. Yeah. Even the work that I'm doing, it's not work that my dad would have done, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when, when it comes to dismantling power structures, it, it, it has to be dismantled, doesn't it, in order for some of these ideas to actually push through within the institution? I think, I think yeah, they, they do have to be sort of radically revised because you cannot build a system on the faults of that previous system. It's always Mm. going to have a weakness. And if we don't address sort of structurally what is holding it all together, uh, for a large part, especially within Christianity, a large part of that is um, white supremacy. And that's what's holding a large context of of that thinking together. Um, Being able to be in a all um, homogeneous community, in security, in fellowship and in harmony with one another makes a lot of sense to them. But it's not seeing the limitations of that. Whereas this branching out and development of um, diverse communities and diverse um, languages, diverse understandings, even diverse religious practices is exactly what Sort of the gospel, what Jesus was doing, <laughs> like trying to trying to build us into a community that's more flexible mm. and understanding, and that we're not so beholden to right ways of doing things, but actually adaptive ways of doing things that will uh, ultimately bring us closer together. I mean, it's certainly the gospel of a very nature is this subversive. Yeah gospel is the subversive culture that is coming up from behind and and not necessarily usurping power but is showing a different way uh, i'm still skeptical that uh the hope and the work 
of change can be done within the institution. So you're, you, so you're saying that, uh, the, of course, there has to be change within the institution. And you will always have those gatekeepers and those people who, even uh, younger millennials who, who would sort of reinforce that sure, system. Yeah, and and yeah. people who are of sort of a, a uh, conscious effort to uh, maintain status quo. And yet those barriers, those conditions need to be questioned and broken down to, to really understand why we're doing what we're doing. So that, can they be broken down? I think they can be questioned. I think they can be um, tested. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is uh, the work of the church today. I think that yeah. mm-hmm. if we look mm-hmm. at things like online or virtual churches, uh, where those movements away from um, rigid dogmatic, you got to sit in the pews and you got to not drink your coffee and do like do the do your time for your hour that you got to be there. Um, to look beyond that, to say that there's a much more flexible way of reaching out, and there's a much more uh, adaptive message that needs to happen in order to get people to understand and ascribe to what you're telling them, and and how the world that we live in right now is not ideal and needs some direction, leadership and change. And the more that we can do to work towards that collectively is something that is going to be a benefit, not only to us and to our communities, but to those around us and those that will benefit from that type of thinking. So the more that we do work in that is the more that we can uh, change and shift those understandings uh, of sameness and of um, security and comfort that people have in their regular routine. I don't think any, I think people get bored of routine a lot and, and need to really change it up in fundamental ways. We're looking for those inspirations that will help us to make life meaningful again. I wonder how many people. Uh, prefer no change because it's safe. The sameness is safety. As long as they're benefiting from it, they they are quite content to mm-hmm. uh, be part of that and be oblivious to the injustices that go on around them. Once it sort of affects them, then they're reaching a point of destabilization. And at that mm-hmm. point then can be reached with sort of the that shock of reality of this is what this is what it is, and this is why it's sort of built into that system and how it's affecting other people other than this person because then they actually have to reflect outside themselves. So you would suggest that culturally right now we're in a period of that destabilization? I think we're in a, in a big shift, yeah, apart from uh, the, the answers that had traditionally held as we have a group of very like-minded um, baby boomer generation that um, carried on a way of doing things that said, okay, you get your, you get married at this age, you get your house, you get your car, you get career, you retire, all this sort of thing, and then you're dead. After that process, for them, it really doesn't apply to anybody else. It really doesn't apply to those of people of my generation, so the Gen X generation, would, that would never happen that way for us. And then for that generation that follows, that has to deal with all of the 
uh, fallout of climate change and of uh, industrial mm-hmm. waste and all this sort of the problems that are coming up. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different world each time. And so that one model that we thought was eternal and there forever about progress and change and, and success doesn't apply to really anybody. I can see that the the pushback to what is tiring, which is good, but exhaustive work trying to shift paradigm within the institution. You may be tired just talking about it. <laughs> we're, we're exhausted right now. And I've seen this in, in, in some of the Gen X crowd who have been engaged in this work since, since maybe the 80s, yeah. uh, have uh, come out of it and said to the ensuing generation, don't waste your time, don't waste your life trying to decenter whiteness go and do your own thing maybe not your own thing but uh, go and do and but it could be your own thing but go and spend your life your time your in particular your energy creating something that's not going to consistently try to strip away you and your identity yeah and i think that that part of that is true that um the idea of being anti-whiteness anti uh, colonial and that sort of thing um, is a particular stance that takes on some of that faulted behavior of trying to change other people into what we need them to be trying to um, it's converting is what it is and that to me is is a challenging point to step into versus working on yourself and being able to present those opportunities and influences that come from you rather than from um, your hope that someone will do something differently and be different after that. I don't think that we've ever sort of gotten to the point where we're able to fully um, change the way another person thinks or acts, but we can sort of predictably choose to do those acts that will help to bring about our, at least our own appreciation. So why not third way? Go back to your, to the indigenous church plant right now operating within bounds of institution, but there's, I would say opportunity. Have you broached the possibilities of this thing doing its own thing? Yeah. And it does exist there. It does exist Mm -hmm. as an independent, um, practice and has long been in our community in Morley um, shunned from um, sort of the institutions and had operated uh, below the radar for generations. Uh, I know that uh, one mm-hmm. of my uh, friends who was a uh, in school early on, like grade two or three, and then was never there again, um, had been taken by his parents and, and trained in our traditional teachings. And because of that, uh, didn't grow up learning to read and write and all that sort of thing, forgot how to do all that stuff, but was very adept at understanding uh, traditions, prayers, songs, different, had all kinds of wisdom and all kinds of knowledge. And so he didn't fit into the mold of a regular... Um, employee, but ended up having to work with him and, and, and 
had a real appreciation of the types of knowledge that were important for that family and for that community in how they wanted to practice and respect what they had been what they had been holding most dear so the the more that we learn to understand and respect those differences we're not particularly given to uh creating whole new cultures out of whole cloth we are always in transition towards something else i think the more that we can base those on foundations of principles like those teachings of our elders which are the same teachings that christ had about loving your neighbor about being respecting your elders and and uh, being a a help to the community rather than a someone who thwarted the community the more that we can live out those principles of being a help and being productive then we can find a balance between these differing ideologies and differing spaces because those are perspectives on living they aren't living so you would say that um would you say that you have culturally inherited then a way to live in both worlds to an extent I think it's very difficult to try to um, do both. I think it's very difficult to try to um, maintain the integrity of both. You're mm. always going to slip up and you're always going to be sure. subjected to different systems and different rules within different environments. And you always have to constantly switch that register to, am I here talking to elders or am I here talking to a mm. uh, magistrate in a, in a court setting or something? Mm. So if you find a way to balance who you are in these spaces. One of the things that we do in our uh, traditional teaching is to talk about um, our centering and centering around the medicine wheel and those teachings and beginning in the east to the where the sun comes up, where we begin the day, where we begin the light of the world. And so information, knowledge comes into the world and we begin. So this is your life. This is the springtime of, of our season, reaching an apex of the sun going to the, the highest point, which is usually in the south, and that becomes the, the high point of our lives, the maturity, the summertime. Then going down and descending into the uh, other end of the spectrum here uh, in the west where we have the sunset, we have rains, we have uh, the winds coming in, um, that the... the the realm of what is called the thunder beings. And then that's the daytime, that's your life. The other side of it is this night that half of our lives live in. And so from the north we talk about um, things like the snows that come or the northern lights that are our ancestors dancing. Mm -hmm. And so coming back all the way around from the north to the east again, and this big cycle that we live in. And so to center ourselves in the middle of that, um, traditionally they say you put in the center that which is most precious. So we put ourselves, we put our, our heart, our mind into that center. And we, in centering ourselves, also look up to the heavens, to the stars, where we believe we came from as Sioux people, and below to the earth. So there's this seven-point hmm. configuration, and we're right in the middle. Hmm. And so that makes us uh, the center of 
that understanding, if we can get to that center and begin to understand that from this position, from this point, we engage in all other things around us, but we remain centered, then we have a better chance of understanding how we are to act, how we are to engage, how we are to live out our lives in relation to the things around us that we really can't control. Hmm. What do you see and, and what is your hope uh, for the ensuing generations to pick up some of this work? I think that at one point I thought that it was sort of falling off the wayside. Having gone to some of the um, uh, studies and, and to uh, practices in Winnipeg and other areas um, where you're meeting with people on the street who are Indigenous heritage who don't know or haven't been involved with their communities, uh, had grown up completely apart from them, hmm. and so haven't had any context about uh, what a uh, Indigenous way of thinking is or, or why things are the way they are. And so having a very tough time dealing with their environment around them and uh, feeling sort of abandoned into that and lost. And so from that perspective and, and the youth that come out of that, which is a large portion of our Indigenous communities today, something like 80% of the uh, Indigenous people live in urban centers now hmm. mm -hmm. versus on, on the reserves. And on the reserves, primarily you have young people. Uh, largest populations are under 20 right now so for the next upcoming generation we're going to have a large influx of indigenous people into uh, leadership and into uh, community structures and who have not been given a great education who have not been given a lot of the tools have been sort of disenfranchised from their cultural customs and things like that now we're dealing with a situation of there are communities coming up that are going to be in distress and how are we going to deal with that? Because there's a lot of addictions, a lot of FAS, a lot of social ills that are going to come to rest upon the society. And that has to be dealt with from a cross-cultural level, but also interculturally in how we deal with a fixing of our cultural way of thinking of our, of our norms. And so with uh, the recent generation and the people that, from my family and from others, turning back to some of the traditional teachings, um, not being so much interested in Christianity as they are in the um, traditional teachings, mm -hmm. uh, our ceremonies and things like that, to be aware and understanding. I think there's a, we always talk about a great connection between that, this world and the next world, this world and the spirit world, and that our traditional ways of thinking come from that dialogue between those worlds. And so as long as we maintain that connection and understanding, we'll always have sort of a foothold of, of where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. So where I would have been more concerned about um, the direction of some of the youth, especially in the urban centers and how they are um, dealing with issues of alienation, isolation, poverty, um, mental illness and different things like that, addictions, that there is some hope coming from those that are engaged in cultural teachings and cultural understandings, those that are hungry for that type of uh, perspective in the world versus uh, 
those that have completely shut off from that. Mm-hmm. And so we have to encourage those teachings and those ways of thinking in order to balance people for the future. Not balance just people, balance families, balance communities, so that they can exist into the future. Because the more that they turn away from their cultural teachings, the more that we turn away from the, the ways of knowing, that just leads to a fracturing of that psyche, a fracturing of that personality, a fracturing of that community. So it's very difficult to come back from those those challenges once that has started to occur. But I think that more and more what I'm seeing from younger generations is a great hunger for the mm. traditional teachings and a spiritual way of, of knowing the world. And not just from our Indigenous communities, but from the non-Indigenous community as well. I think they feel that same um, need. If you have a sense that then this work this idea this emerging church plant is is but one piece in in filling that gap i think it's one piece in in because i mean if we do just one thing and we leave it at that they'll think oh we'll just shuffle everything to the side and put every throw everybody over there and that'll be fine um, into an indigenous church and then the indigenous church can survive on its own if it can but i think that we need a more integrative approach on bringing those indigenous teachings into the into Christianity, into the churches, into into the, the dominant church, yeah, yeah, and to inform. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a that's a critical piece. I think we should highlight is not this notion of indigenous people doing their own indigenous thing off to the side for other indigenous folks and it'll just be this indigenous thing but but it's a picture it's a it's a dream even that that all minorities in a way have been taught to believe is that you can't lead in your own voice Hmm. you can only lead when you can adopt dominant cultural trends Hmm. Um, if you look wide enough, then you can lead in white spaces mm-hmm. and talk wide enough and sound. So what you're saying about not merely indigenous church plant for indigenous people, but an integrative approach, this is a, a call to say that actually indigenous people, our expertise is good enough to be at the forefront, which is not always what people of color or minorities have been mm. built to think. Yeah. And that was, that was the teaching coming out of the ecumenical conference saying that um, it is now our time to take our lessons out and to start teaching mm-hmm. and to start bringing those, um, mm-hmm. that information to light because it has a mm-hmm. great application in the world that we live now. And part of that instruction was not just, it's not just meant to give us a, a soapbox to stand on, but it is a way of getting involved and helping to steer the ship and to bring apart, bring along other voices because that's how we work. That's how we uh, develop. That's the, that's the entire consensus model is that to work within a, a community will to do the actions that make the most sense for that community. 
And that act in itself is an exercise, I think, in decentering power mm-hmm. that you show up and you, now I, I would use the term you lead, mm-hmm. but would you say that a better term would be you come in to teach? Because when, when you lead, then suddenly it may look like you're, unless you're leading in a moment, but it looks like you're um, working outside of that kind of consensus approach that you mentioned. I think a lot of it is, is um, we don't like to be at the forefront of things. <laughs> I don't like to, As like to a be a ca- Canadian like, thing? Or yeah, a, well, yeah. to stand up and say, well, this is all me and I'm so great and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but to say that we are here to help guide and we are here to help support. Yeah. And to direct as much as we can, from, given what we've learned and given that our perspective is, is different. Yeah. Um, I guess it's a leadership, uh, it's a reciprocal leadership in that here's my expertise and I will live and learn from yours. And What we do for the traditional land use studies is often we'll bring in a map and we'll talk to elders and we'll talk about certain histories and certain stories within particular areas. And someone will say, oh, we used to go here and we used to do this and that. And and another one will say, oh, this is where we had this story and blah, blah, blah. And someone will say, this is where... uh, such and such an event happened, and so there's a connection here between this and and some other um, um, mythological story. And so by doing that, we're creating that mosaic of understanding, and by encouraging those voices, we're painting a picture and filling in a lot of gaps. It's like a puzzle. And as we put in, everybody puts in their piece, you start to see the whole. Mm. And so Mm. that's Mm -hmm. typically what we see for... Uh, traditional land use is that no one has one whole, complete, definitive story about an area. Everybody will have been given a certain piece. When they bring that together, that's when the community awareness and community understand, understanding builds and they can start sharing from there because that leads to other things. Mm-hmm. Tony Snow with the third part of a three-part series. The part one was in season one of the Faith in the Fresh Five podcast, and this is the second of a two-part series in season two. You might have picked up some pieces there at the end as he was talking about the ecumenical councils that took place in the 70s, just outside of Banff and Morley. The legacy of that council was predominantly, almost exclusively, Indigenous it's something we still participate in see up until this day. The National Indigenous Peoples Day is something that came out from this council. So there's a rich history here and also a different perspective, in many ways right underneath our noses, particularly if you come out of a context of a Christian but also Canadian context. The reality is, is there are stories in your space and place, on the land that you sit on, there are similar stories of the First Peoples who ventured along those lands. Hopefully some of them are still around to offer some teaching of how to reorient ourselves back to land-based education, back to the land. That is one facet when it comes to the process of decolonizing the Christian faith, decolonizing as a word to say that most of our Christian faith in the West has been centered around white European lenses. That's how we see the world. That's how we interpret our faith. 
is there another foundation where we can springboard from and come up with different perspectives of the same scriptures and the same faith? In order to do that, we need a different kind of lens. And Tony presented pieces of that and a notion that if you have ideas, if you are a minority, a person of color, that the view that you have of the world and of faith counts. Not only that, you can operate at the forefront of the church to help reimagine what is coming next, not only for yourself, but for those who are coming in behind you as well. Thanks so much for tuning in for the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. I was teasing here now the next iteration, which will include a deeper dive on decolonizing the Christian faith and racism, prejudice, all those fancy things of power systems in play in culture and also in the church. How do we get out of them? How do we press forward? How do we even notice them to begin with? you want to stick around for that. It's coming up next. I'm Rohati. Come and find me on the social medias, on my website, and on Cypher Church's website.